Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. Dr. Casey Grover, happy to be back again as your host for another episode. Today, we're going to be talking through the neurobiology of how substance use disorders lead to erratic, unpredictable, and often very destructive behavior. And we'll start with a patient story. If you listen to some of my initial episodes, I mentioned my friend Paul. He suffered from a severe substance use disorder, and my podcast logo is actually his painting of what it feels like to live with a substance use disorder. Paul and I sat down one day for coffee to talk about addiction, and this story came out. I apologize in advance. It's a little graphic. So, at one point in his life, Paul was out of both money and drugs, and his highly addicted mind began coming up with plans for how to get both. He came upon an advertisement from a pharmaceutical company that was trialing a new antibiotic. They would pay $50 for people with a skin or soft tissue infection to be a part of the trial for their new antibiotic. So in Paul's mind, it made perfect sense. That was how he was going to get the money he needed to get more drugs. Now all he needed was an infection. Paul described himself as having a, quote, addicted brain or addict brain that would make bad decisions when he was using. And this is actually a common term in recovery. And Paul let me know before he went on to the next part of his story that it was his, quote, addict brain that made the next decision, not his normal brain. Paul, believing that getting an infection and enrolling in an antibiotic trial was his ticket to money and therefore drugs, did what his addict brain thought was the logical next step. He pulled out his pocket knife and made a large laceration in his own forearm. He then went to a public restroom and smeared his freshly lacerated forearm all over the floor of the public restroom. It made perfect sense. Paul needed money for drugs. An infection would get him money in this antibiotic trial, so this was a slam dunk. And my response was, you did what? What in the name of Sam Hill is wrong with you? I didn't understand at that time how the addicted brain works. And the answer of what was wrong with Paul when he made that decision to cut his forearm and smear it on the floor of a public restroom comes down to dopamine. As always, I tried to keep this evidence-based. And this podcast episode is based on a compilation of research from multiple books on this topic. One book was The Molecule of More by Daniel Lieberman. Another was Never Enough by Judith Grizel. A third was The Biology of Desire by Mark Lewis. And the fourth was Methland by Nick Redding. So let's dive into this topic. And I'm going to intentionally avoid using too many scientific terms 
to try to keep this as simple as possible. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter in our brain that is associated with reward and the anticipation of reward, which is often referred to as desire. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is active in the reward centers of the brain. Over the eons of evolution, it has become associated with the things in our human world that keep us alive, food, sex, community, and shelter. By evolving to feel good when we eat, have community, and have sex, we are wired to do the behaviors that ensure our survival. Dopamine is therefore linked to behaviors associated with survival. Furthermore, we also learn best when we are emotionally stimulated, such as by dopamine. You can probably tell this from your own life, as the most emotionally charged moments throughout your life are very easy to remember, while you may not even remember at all what you ate for lunch three Tuesdays ago. As it pertains to our neurobiological development, if we are out as hunter-gatherers and we come upon a large bush of berries, the sugar in the berries cause dopamine release, which makes us feel good. And that emotional feel-good stimulation helps us to remember where that bush is so when we are hungry or need food, we can get back to it. So once again, dopamine is linked to behaviors associated with survival. Our ability to feel pleasure comes from the reward centers in our brain, with dopamine as the most prominent neurotransmitter in these areas. The dopamine levels in our brain in the reward centers varies from 40 nanograms per deciliter up to 100 nanograms per deciliter. At 40 nanograms per deciliter, we feel dysphoric, while at 100 nanograms per deciliter, we feel euphoric. I often lecture on this topic, and when I do, I give the example of the day that we had to put our dog to sleep in 2019. Our poor Malamute was in so much pain with a tumor that we had to take him to the vet to put him to sleep. I left the vet with tears in my eyes, covered in fur, and the feeling that something was deeply missing in my life. We loved our dog and we miss him. And so on that day, my dopamine was bottoming out in the 40 range. Now, on the flip side, on the day I got accepted to medical school, I was absolutely ecstatic. I will never forget trying to go to the gym to work out and yet being too giddy to lift weights. My dopamine was surging close to 100. And to my point about emotional learning, I can still remember both events with crystal clarity in my mind. Now, on to how addiction fits in. Addiction is the result of when substances or behaviors disrupt the normal functioning of dopamine in the reward centers of the brain. Let's see how this works by looking at methamphetamine. Methamphetamine causes extra dopamine release in the brain while blocking reuptake of dopamine in the brain as well. Let's stop for a second and consider this. Methamphetamine causes the brain to put out more dopamine than normal and blocks the brain from reabsorbing it so the dopamine levels go up higher and last longer. No wonder it's euphoric. Now, in terms of the actual amount of dopamine, methamphetamine causes dopamine levels in the reward center of the brain to skyrocket up to 1,400 nanograms per deciliter. The euphoria and dopamine is so incredibly intense, it is much higher than anything normally in the physiologic range. So, what happens next? Well, as you can imagine, 
the person experiencing that incredible euphoria is likely to seek it again. As such, the person will use methamphetamine again to achieve that euphoria from that ridiculously high amount of dopamine. However, the amount of dopamine released will not be the same the second time the person uses as the brain is not used to having so much released at any given time and there may not be as much dopamine available. Additionally, the brain regulates dopamine receptors to try to maintain homeostasis. And so some of the dopamine receptors will have been down-regulated, which basically means that the brain reduces the number of receptors that are available to try to reduce the effect of the supranormal level of dopamine. So the second meth use will be extremely euphoric, but not as much as the first. Still seeking that first intense high with a rush of dopamine that is higher than anything else the person has or will experience, the person will continue to use methamphetamine. Let's fast forward to chronic and repeated meth use. Eventually, the brain is so depleted of dopamine and the dopamine receptors have been so downregulated that the dopamine system in the reward centers of the brain is completely dysfunctional. Now, what does this actually look like? Well, without methamphetamine, the person has extremely low dopamine levels in the brain, even below the normal baseline low of 40 nanograms per deciliter. This means that without meth, a person is extremely dysphoric and will desire to use methamphetamine to get their dopamine levels up. With methamphetamine in their system, because the dopamine system is so broken from repeated overstimulation, the person cannot get the dopamine levels up into the euphoric range, and the use of the drug just gets them into kind of a normal range, like maybe 60 nanograms per deciliter, just to feel normal. And this does a few very unfortunate things. First, because the dopamine system is so dysfunctional and the stimulus provided by meth for dopamine release is so much stronger than anything natural, the brain eventually learns that the only way to get dopamine is to use meth. And so normal interpersonal relationships, hobbies, or even food no longer provide any enjoyment for the person. The small amount of dopamine that will be released normally by those behaviors or activities pales in comparison to the effect of the stimulation from the drug. One of Paul's family members recalls taking him out for a walk when he was newly in recovery. They were out on a beautiful sunny day in the forest walking, and Paul's response was, I don't get it. What am I supposed to like here? Am I supposed to like that tree? And he had essentially forgotten how to enjoy the natural pleasures of life as the dopamine reward system in his brain was so dysfunctional as he was used to drugs being the only way for him to get any dopamine. Second, we have to remember that dopamine is a neurotransmitter in our brains that is linked to survival behaviors. When our dopamine is low, we seek things to raise it. A person not using substances might exercise or call a friend or hug a family member to feel better. These will all raise dopamine. However, as we noted before, the dysfunctional dopamine system in people with substance use no longer responds to those normal stimuli. Because of the chronic overstimulation of the dopamine system, normal stimuli no longer raise dopamine in a meaningful way for a person compared to what drugs and alcohol do. And when the dopamine levels are critically low, the body, since we are wired with dopamine as a survival neurotransmitter, 
will do anything to get those levels up. In our brain, our prefrontal cortex is our rational decision maker. It helps us, among other functions, to weigh the risks and benefits of our decisions. When the brain is craving dopamine because levels are profoundly low, the brain actually perceives this as a threat to survival and reverts back to more primitive parts of the brain, going back to our most basic fight or flight responses. Input from the prefrontal cortex is ignored due to the perceived need to preserve survival at all costs, which means that in this state, behavior is impulsive and erratic with minimal ability to weigh out the risks and benefits of decisions made. Back to Paul. So in Paul's mind, his low dopamine when he was out of drugs was in his mind a matter of life and death. The risk to his forearm by cutting it open and rubbing it on the floor of a public restroom was worth taking for him given that he felt that getting more of his drug was a matter of life and death for him. So putting it all together, what is the quote addict brain? It is a brain with a disrupted dopamine reward system due to regular drug use. Normally pleasurable stimuli no longer feel good as the addict brain learns that the drug is the only way to get the dopamine needed. And the brain is constantly in fight or flight mode to get more dopamine, leading to erratic and unpredictable behavior to get more drugs with little rational oversight from the prefrontal cortex. And this effect is not just seen with methamphetamine. Methamphetamine is a unique example in that it works directly on the brain as a part of its pharmacology to cause dopamine release and block reuptake of dopamine. This is actually why it is so addictive and so hard to quit. Other substances or behaviors can cause dopamine release as well, and this leads to euphoria, repeated use, and the development of a disrupted dopamine reward system. As a reminder, normal dopamine levels are anywhere from 40 to 100 nanograms per deciliter. When people use opiates for the first time, their dopamine levels might go up to the 400 to 500 nanogram to deciliter range, leading to the same process we outlined above with methamphetamine, with recurrent use leading to dopamine receptor downregulation and depletion of dopamine with repeat opiate use. Or a person might use alcohol for the first time and their dopamine levels could go up into the 300 to 400 nanograms per deciliter range. Or a person might gamble for the first time and have a similar dopamine response. Any so-called addictive behavior or substance is addictive due to this mechanism of dopamine in the brain. Now, methamphetamine works in the brain by increasing dopamine release and inhibiting dopamine reuptake. So the effect on dopamine is very direct. For other substances, the response is a little less clear. Why does one person drink alcohol and get a big dopamine response leading to recurrent use and disrupted dopamine systems while another person does not get much of a dopamine response at all. We don't quite know the answer to that yet, but it likely involves a combination of genetic predisposition along with life circumstances. A person with a strong family history of alcohol use disorder is more likely to have supranormal release of dopamine from alcohol as compared to a person without a family history of alcohol use disorder. Or a person with little surrounding love and support in their lives likely has low normal levels of dopamine on a regular basis, and exposure to opioids may be more likely to cause a supranormal release of dopamine 
since the person runs low and is mildly dysphoric on a daily basis. Or sometimes we can't predict. There are so many patient stories of, I wasn't a drinker, I didn't smoke, and I was happy. And yet when my dentist or doctor gave me Vicodin, it was all over and I couldn't stop using. Now there's one more thing to consider in this equation and that's withdrawal. Nearly all of the substances of abuse, from alcohol to cannabis to stimulants to opiates, have a withdrawal syndrome when use of the substance is abruptly stopped. For some of these, like the stimulants, the withdrawal syndrome is dysphoria, poor sleep, and irritability, which may be actually mostly from the low dopamine levels. But others have a much more tangible physiologic effect, like tremulousness, anxiety, agitation, and even seizures with alcohol withdrawal, or nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, body aches, anxiety, yawning, you name it, with opiates. And withdrawal feels awful. So there is an additional motivation for people with substance use disorders to be extremely motivated to get more of their substance of choice when they run out, namely to prevent the horrible feeling of withdrawal. And that's actually where we as medical providers can use medication-assisted treatment to address withdrawal with medications like gabapentin and benzodiazepines for alcohol use disorder and buprenorphine or methadone for opiate use disorder. By treating and preventing withdrawal with medications for patients seeking recovery, we allow them to focus on the psychological aspects of their addiction without having to worry about feeling so sick. I often tell patients on opiates, we have two problems. Number one, when you stop using opioids, you get physically sick from withdrawal. Number two, there are lots of psychological problems in your brain right now from your addiction. Let me give you some buprenorphine so you don't have to worry about being physically sick. You can just focus on helping your brain to heal. Now you're probably wondering, once the dopamine reward system in the brain is broken, how long does it take to go back to normal? The true answer is that it varies from person to person, but on average it takes about two years after cessation of the use of the substance for the dopamine reward system to go back to normal. And this explains why relapse is so common. People in early recovery still have trouble getting dopamine from regular activities and still tend to have baseline low dopamine levels. So it's very easy for them to go back to the one thing that they know will make them feel better and give them dopamine, which is their substance. It's for this reason that love, emotional support, and structure is so important in early recovery as it provides natural dopamine while helping them to relearn how to live life without their substance. And just to be clear, patients with a substance use disorder may actually have no clue what dopamine is. When I say that they want to get dopamine, I am referring to how their brain is affecting their behavior when the brain itself is responding to low dopamine levels. And unfortunately, even once they have gotten their dopamine reward system back to normal, the person will still likely get a huge surge in dopamine if they resume the use of their substance despite years of recovery. Regrettably, some patients with a substance use disorder feel that they are cured after a long time of sobriety and can start drinking or using substances again. Yet, recurrent use of the substance causes the same supranormal spike of dopamine and the cycle can start over again. So that's our whirlwind tour of the neurobiology of the addicted brain. So the next time you're working and you have a patient with substance use disorder and you wonder, what made you think that was a good idea? Now you know. Thanks for listening. I hope this helps you understand more the struggles that our patients with substance use disorder go through 
And don't forget, treating substance use disorders save lives.